Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Charlie Speaks. It's episode six. We are talking Louise Hay, and as a result of talking Louise Hay's You Can Heal Your Life book from the 1980s, I'll be doing sort of an overview of my entire spirituality and spiritual journey throughout the course of my life. So uh, before we get started, let me introduce myself for those of you who might be new. My name is Philip Barr. I am Real Charlie. Real Charlie is a television and review blog that I've been doing over the last dozen years or so. Uh, actually, I think we're up to year 13. I decided a couple months ago this in this year to start a podcast. So once a month, I am selecting an older work of art, either a film, a TV series, a piece of literature, music. I'm remembering how it felt to experience that for the first time a long time ago in my lifetime, and then how it feels today. Has it held up? Um, Has it not held up? Um, So that's where we're at today. And uh, I am going to upload these podcasts um, to... Uh, all the different podcast platforms now. I wanted to wait until I had six episodes, and this is episode six. It's November 8th, 2022, and uh, this is Real Charlie Speaks. So let's just jump in and get started. So I would like to spend today discussing a really, really incredibly influential book in my life. Uh, I discovered this book when I was in my 20s in the 1980s in Atlanta, Georgia. And it really transformed the way that I looked at my life. It also helped me uh, really navigate my journey with HIV from a death sentence to a chronic illness, which is what it's at today. Uh, So uh, as a result of talking about this book, I'm going to talk about the book. I'm going to talk about the author, Louise Hay. And then I'm going to talk about some other spiritual books that either were complementary or that I discovered on my uh, road to... um, creating a foundation for myself, a spiritual foundation for myself um, in my life. Where do I begin? I think where I should begin is I should talk about my childhood. Um, So I was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, I was extremely devout Catholic as a child. I believed everything, uh, or at least most everything, I guess, that the church uh, was preaching. There were some kinks in the armor along the way, um, which helped me sort of wake up to realize that I didn't want to participate in organized religion when I became a young adult. But um, I have to say that it was really fulfilling for me to be involved in the Catholic Church when I was younger. So as a child, and when I'm talking child, I really mean like elementary school. Um, I was an altar boy. I was a lector. I was a cantor. And I ended up in High school, doing some guitar masses, actually. I, uh, I learned the guitar when I was younger. Don't ask me to play a thing now. I haven't played the guitar in decades. But I knew enough to sort of learn some sort of uh, 70s funkadelic hymns, and, uh, and I was, a, and I was an, um, uh, part of that as well. Uh, I um, was very fortunate, as my mother will tell you, if she was still alive, I was very fortunate to have been around priests that were not pedophiles. So I didn't get molested. I didn't get uh, any sort of creepy vibes. The church I grew up in through eighth grade, there were two priests. There was a pastor and then there was a, um, I guess he was the assistant pastor. The pastor was older. He was like in my dad's generation. He was a really nice guy. I don't remember a lot about him. He wasn't real um, 
talkative with children, but he was always a good presence. My dad got along really well with him. My dad actually counted money for the church every Sunday. That was sort of his job with the church that he volunteered. And my mom did a huge amount of volunteer work with the church throughout her life. Um, So they were both really involved. And we lived about two blocks away from the church up until eighth grade. Um, Both of my sisters, I have three older sisters. Two of them were married uh, very young uh, when they were both about 21 years old. Both of them got married in that church. Uh, And then, as I mentioned, I keep talking about eighth grade. So in eighth grade, we moved um, from Easton, Pennsylvania to Allentown, Pennsylvania. And at that point was really, uh, I had already entered, uh, when seventh grade, I made a decision to stop going to Catholic school because I was in Catholic school from first grade through sixth. And then in seventh grade, I made a decision to go to public school. When we transferred uh, up to, or when we moved up to Allentown, I um, really, that's really when my, I feel like my experience with the church changed. So we we were in a fairly working class. When I say fairly working class, I mean that it was working class slash poor. It wasn't working class slash um, middle class or up. So it was working class, middle class, um, a bit of poor. Um, and so I feel like, I know this sounds pretentious to say at this point in my life, but I feel like there was more realness to my experiences in that neighborhood Um, When we moved to a middle class slash upper middle class neighborhood when I was in eighth grade, everything sort of felt um, distant and a bit indifferent. So, and that was my experience with the church as well. We went to um, a Catholic church from eighth grade through high school, through when I got to college. And the church was a, um, well, I'm blanking on that word now. It was uh, a diocesan church, so it was the the head of the diocese. So it was a big cathedral. That's what it was. It was a cathedral. It was a big cathedral. Had a lot of uh, gold paint in the church. My parents were really not happy with the way it looked. It looked really ostentatious and really wealthy, really wealthy, and they didn't like that. But we went, and we went every week. Um, we were good Catholics. My father used to refer to himself as a cafeteria Catholic, which meant that he sort of picked and chose what he wanted. Um, And at some point he did admit to me that they had used birth control. They had four kids, but obviously they could have had 14 kids if they hadn't used the birth control. So I think almost anybody that, um, that didn't have a mountain of children was using some form of birth control, whether they had just stopped having sex with each other or they were uh, limiting their sexual activity to something other than intercourse or whether they were actually using condoms or something like that. Uh, so that's sort of where, uh, where my childhood went. I, uh, I did go to CCD classes in the, uh, in the church, uh, in Allentown, but that was my only real connection to the church. Um, I feel like in 11th grade, I started, I don't think I was necessarily questioning my sexuality, but I was very confused about um, where I fit in with my friends. Uh, A lot of my friends were pairing up with uh, people of the opposite sex, and I just didn't really have a lot of interest in that. I did end up having a a girlfriend in high school, a very nice young woman, but it didn't last and it wasn't very fulfilling. And uh, I I wish I could have turned, I wish I could turn back time and sort of uh, have a conversation with her. I'm sure had I been a young person in today's world, I probably would have been out when I was 14 or something like that, but uh, not so much back then. 
However, I did come out fairly early for the time period. I came out between my freshman and sophomore year in college. Uh, I had I was just turning 19. I was a, a young college student. And once that happened, I really started looking at the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church and their stance on homosexuality and on a lot of things, on equality with women, birth control. Um, you know, even now, like when I talk to people about how I just don't have any tolerance for uh, and don't understand why anyone would practice, would want to practice Catholicism at that, that point, it's not particularly the gay issue is not the first thing that comes up. It's really the equality issue with women. I don't really quite understand why anyone would not want to go to an institution that provided equality between the genders. I mean, women are more than 50% of the population. There's no reason not to do that. And you can do that in the Episcopal Church. You can do that in a lot of really welcoming, you know, sort of non-denominational or ecumenical, what's the term? Is it, I guess it's non-denominational. Churches like, uh, uh, Metropolitan Community Church and uh, some others. I'm just blanking on them. But there's lots of Christian churches that you can certainly seek out if you want a uh, different experience. I do realize that there's a whole thing about family and and identity with the Catholic Church and all of that, but I just don't get why anybody supports it at this point. And that's that's my feeling. And I would have that conversation with anybody if it came up. I certainly don't bring it up a lot, but I just don't really understand um, so that's sort of where I stood back then. Um, so by the time I was, I was going to church when I was still in college. And then by the time I came out that second year of college, I really, um, I think I stopped going to church at that point. And then when I got home, I'm trying to think, because I took two years off from school and lived at home and then went back to college. I don't, I can't really remember. I think I was still going to church with my parents just to sort of appease them. But then when I got back to school, uh, I didn't really go to church when I was up at Penn State. And then when I moved to Atlanta was when I really made the split. So after I graduated from college, I was 22 and I made the split and uh, moved to Atlanta from Pennsylvania and started my adult life. And that's when I really made the conscious effort to stop going to church. And that's where... Louise Hay and metaphysical um, uh, new age philosophy really comes in. So almost immediately, it was really kind of interesting. I actually remember my very first apartment that I had when I was in Atlanta. I remember uh, one of my college roommates coming to visit and bringing new age books. And then I had already started going to the spiritual bookstore in Atlanta and was also delving into this. There was a third roommate, uh, three out of the four of us delved into, uh, really deeply actually into new age philosophy. Um, the other person, the, the fourth person, uh, I, I don't know. He, I lost touch with him. He was still practicing Catholicism when we knew him, but I don't really know what happened, uh, to him spiritually. Um, I know he's still, uh, he's still around, but I don't know what happened to him spiritually. So I was reading things like Shirley MacLaine, Out on the Limb, and, uh, and all sorts of books that were really pointing me towards um, an understanding of how to celebrate my spirituality and my life without being weighted down by all of the negativity of organized religion. Um, you know, organized religion is great if you're a cisgender, straight, white man, um, but for the rest of us, not so great. Um, so I really, really embraced New Age philosophy. I um, 
started going to uh, some alternate churches, which didn't really I didn't really connect with so much. I did a lot of reading. I would have to say about 50% of my reading back then was uh, spiritual nonfiction books, um, so guidebooks and things like that. And then at some point, Louise Hay came on the scene. Um, she had been on the scene for a while, and um, she was a spiritual teacher, and um, she was out in California. She was a former model, and she, uh, when the AIDS crisis really took root and really hit, she started um, having these drop-in groups. They called them the a um, the Hay Rides. Her last name is Hay, H-A-Y, Louise Hay, and they started having these things called the Hay Ride, where um, a bunch of People, mostly gay men uh, dealing with HIV or having partners or friends with HIV, would come to these uh, meetings and have very, they would be very um, celebratory. And uh, you do a lot of, um, uh, you do a lot of, do a lot of things. I'm, I'm blanking on the terms now. <laughs> I'll have to try to edit some of this out or maybe not. Um, maybe I'll just show you how I stumble sometimes. Uh, but we did, uh, she would do stuff like mirror work, which you'd hold up a mirror and you'd speak to yourself. Um, we would do um, affirmations. That's the word I was trying to think of. So there was a lot of affirmation work and just a lot of work on understanding um, how your attitude and your um, feelings and your opinions about yourself can really influence your, your physical health. Now I'm going to pause for a minute because... Uh, there are a lot of people that came from that time period who, when you talk to them about Louise Hay or about the New Age movement, they will tell you that it was damaging towards men, especially, especially gay men uh, with HIV, that it was telling them that it was their fault that they had somehow contracted this disease and that they had to sort of repent um, and figure out a way to move through the disease. That is not how I saw her at all. Um, she was a loving human being. Um, she did have a booklet out that came out before the seminal work, You Can Heal Your Life, called Heal Your Body. My copy is uh, listed here as my second copy from February of, of, two, of 1989. So February of 1989, I got my second copy. This is Heal Your Body, The Mental Causes for Physical Illness and the Metaphysical Way to Overcome Them. And so each of anything that you could imagine, um, you know, problems with your arteries. Um, it's carry the joy of life. And then you get an affirmation that goes along with that. So, um, so the probable cause, uh, the problem is arteries. The probable cause is carry the joy of life. And the new thought pattern or affirmation is I am filled with joy. It flows through me with every beat of my heart. Now, when I look at this, I don't see um, someone telling me that I did something wrong to manifest this disease. So I'm going to go right to the meat of the matter, which is I'm going to talk about what she says about AIDS in here. This is from 1989, which is, uh, well, actually it's for before that. Let me see when it was actually published. So it was published in 82. Um, wow. The first printing was actually 76. And then it was uh, published in 82. Um, and that's when I think AIDS was introduced here which is at the very beginning of the AIDS crisis. So the problem is AIDS. The probable cause says denial of the self, sexual guilt, a strong belief in not being good enough. And then the new thought pattern is I am a divine, magnificent expression of life. I rejoice in my sexuality. I rejoice in all that I am. I love myself. See, that's the part that I don't understand how people could be upset because first of all, 
the probable cause, I don't feel like it's blaming anyone. I feel like it's, uh, I, I didn't take anything literally. I didn't think like, oh, I, I have sexual guilt, therefore I got AIDS. I looked at it as, how can you change your thoughts and ideas so that you focus on positivity while you are trying to combat this illness with the help of your Western medicine doctor, with the help of perhaps alternative therapies, um, and then with the help of um, someone like Louise Hay, who is walking you through creating a more positive life. So to me, that's really the bulk and the gist of Louise Hay and You Can Heal Your Life. This book was an amazing uh find for me. It really changed the course of how I looked at my life spiritually. It gave me a, a spiritual foundation that I still live for for the rest with the rest of my life. It's I've it's it stayed with me. I really do believe that your thoughts can really influence not I don't think that your f- thoughts can really um well, I do think that there's a connection between your thoughts and disease and uh negativity and depression in your life. Absolutely. I really do believe that. Um, I don't think that if that, if you, if you get something, if you get cancer or if you have depression or if you have, um, you know, diverticulitis or whatever, that you created that in yourself. I don't believe that. I believe that um, your body is working and your mind is working and they're working in sync with each other. What I do believe is that if you have illness and you're negative with that illness, it can really cause you a lot of personal harm within your body, but also the way that you look at the, the rest of your life, how much time you have left. So I really feel like if somebody is dealing with cancer and they're depressed, they're, they could, they're, the chances are they're going to, not chances are, but they're going to get through the cancer one way or the other, depending upon what kind of treatments they get. And what kind of what's going on in their body, what kind of genetic structure they have, etc. That said, the difference between somebody who has a positive attitude or not, I'm not talking about like Pollyanna, I'm saying like who has a positive attitude, who uh, is or is seeking to have a more positive attitude, because we all go through anger and depression. And it's, you know, life is not this lovely little incline that keeps you keep becoming more and more beautiful and wonderful. And then when you die, of course, you're going to go to heaven, or of course, you're going to go to nirvana, or of course, you're going to blend back in with all of the stars because you have evolved. Life to me, my personal experience with the life that I have is that it's up and down. Sometimes I'm depressed, sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm frustrated, sometimes I'm content, sometimes I'm in total bliss, sometimes I'm completely out of whack. And it's not a straight line. So um, I feel like books like this can really help you remind you if we do, I used to, I I say I used to because I don't, I used to do affirmations every day in the morning, in the, at night before I went to bed. Um, throughout the day, I'd have them, I'd have affirmations up at my desk. I'd have them at home on my mirror in my bathroom. When I brush my teeth at night in the morning, all sorts of things to just remind me to stay positive no matter what. And I do really think that it helped. I really do. I think that part, you know, I don't know why I survived HIV and everybody else around me died. I don't know that answer. I carry a lot of, um, I carry a lot of uh, weight from that. Um, 
I don't really even know if I can put a word to it, but I carry a lot of weight from that. There's a, it's a big burden. I want to live my life because other people didn't have that opportunity to do that. So when I'm in a good mo- mood and I'm, in, I'm on a good path, I can really think about how wonderful it is that I have this opportunity that other people did not have. However, I do think it's a combination of the time period that I got it in. Uh, when I moved to New York City in 1990, I was able to go and be with one of the best HIV doctors in the country. I um, went to, uh, I continued to go to uh, spirit. I went to the healing circle in New York city, which was a spiritual metaphysical group. I, I continued to be work on positivity and affirmations in my life. I also started doing alternative therapies. I started, I was very aggressive. I was aggressive politically. I did work with act up. I was aggressive socially and, um, with my own life where I went to conferences and I tried to learn the newest things. I worked with my doctor as a partner and I really tried to connect with people around me and help people and uh, have great friendships and great loves and all of that. So those are all the things I did to try to move my life forward. Now, had I died of AIDS, I don't, I don't think I would have been on my deathbed saying, Oh fuck Louise Hay, like this was all just bullshit. I think I would have said this was my journey. I made it as positive as I could because of the people in my life and because of reading books like this. And now it's time for it to go. And that's how I'm going to feel when it is my turn, because we all get this turn to leave the planet. So this book to me is just phenomenal. Um, I'm looking at the copy that I got with Louise's signature on it. I believe the time period was about um, 87, 88 in Atlanta. This uh, was uh, this edition was from 1987, and um, it was from a bookstore in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I met her for the first time. I met her twice um, and got some signatures from her. So I have nine books of hers in total. I'm just going to do some. I'm just going to go through all the books really quickly um, for you, just so you know. So the first two books were Heal Your Body which is the pa- almost like a pamphlet book. And then You Can Heal Your Life, which was the, uh, the book that changed my life. One of the books that really changed my life. The next book, she did an entire book on AIDS. And this was back in, I, I bought this book in April of 1989. It was published in 1988. So I got it fairly early. It's called The AIDS Book, Creating a Positive Approach, a Manual to Assist People Facing AIDS and Other Life-Threatening Illnesses. From there, I bought my mother a copy of Heart Thoughts, which was just a treasury of inner wisdom from Louise. Louise also started her own publishing company called Hay House um, and published her own books and then other spiritual teachers' books as well. So this Heart Thoughts is from 1990, and I still have a letter that my mom sent me um, from 1993 talking about something in here. So after my mom died, I got this back. Uh, Louise did a follow-up book to You Can Heal Your Life called The Power Is Within You. I have a first edition uh, version of this in here, uh, or a first edition copy in here. It's from May of 1991. Then we have the 10th anniversary of You Can Heal Your Life, which I pu- purchased in uh, on my birthday, um, which is in November of 1994. I also purchased a copy of Love Yourself, Heal Your Life workbook, which was a companion workbook for the original book. I bought this also on my birthday in 1994 in New York City when I was living in New York City. And I want to just read something that I just wrote in this book so I'll remember it for the rest of my life. So I bought this book in 1994. In December of, in November of 1994, so uh, 13 months later, 
combo th- combination therapy started for people living with HIV. So it was December 6, 1995 that it was for combo therapy was first released. So I wrote the thoughts on this book are 13 months before the turning point begins. I had six years of a death sentence behind me, and I still had 13 more months of a death sentence at least. I probably didn't start combination therapy right away. It may have been a couple months, but at least 13 months ahead. So this workbook has all sorts of um, things that you can fill in. So I'm going to read a few of these for you um, just to get give you an idea of what my thought patterns were back in January of 1995 and um, how this book sort of really helped me. So exercise one is deservability, uh, or the exercise on page nine is deservability. What do you want that you are not having? Be clear and specific about it. So I wrote, to be happy, to be successful, fulfilled in a creative endeavor, independent of others, to be in excellent shape and perfect health. What were the laws or rules in your home about deserving? We only ever had the essentials, food, housing, shelter, never had any extras, never any surprises, never the best. What do you feel that you deserve? It's interesting what I wrote. I wrote, I'm torn. On one level, I feel I deserve. I just don't know what. Dennis has shown me how I can open up to be deserving of many things. Do you deserve to live? And here's another interesting answer to this. I wrote, live yes, but modestly. Never to seize passion, to live life fully. Never taught to taste life. What do you have to live for? I wrote, I don't know. My ideas on my purpose are gelling, but still cloudy. Seems to revolve around sex, teaching a new way to look at at healing through sex, ritual, spiritual practice. And I did do some of that later on, so that's interesting that I wrote that. What do you deserve? I still feel on some level that I don't deserve excellence. That mediocrity equates to safety. I'm not going to read everything on this, but I think it's interesting... um, Let's see. I'm just going to read. You know what? I'm going to read these three. So on page 15, who are you? What do you believe? So these are, um, there's all sorts of information on like what love is, what sex is, work is, money is, success, failure. So I'm going to start off with um, what do you believe? And this is what I believe about men. So what do you believe about men? Men are fragmented, wanderers, different depending upon whether you are talking straight or gay, controlling, self-centered, evolving, sexually appealing, to play with seductive, 98% assholes, largely foreign. (laughs) I have no idea what largely foreign means. That definitely doesn't mean what, you know, it doesn't mean that they're from another country. I think it means that I don't understand them. Women are still weaker culturally, have not grasped their power, need to seize their 50%, which is rightfully theirs, are nurturing, have much to teach me, and all men are not sexually attractive to me and are easier to communicate with. And then love, love is always evolving, mutating, changing, is something more than just an emotion between two or more people, is best expressed universally, is changing within our culture. Romantic love is elusive, deceitful, and hard to maintain. Passion is in the moment. And then it goes on and on from there. So um, there are 170 pages in this book. I filled out uh, all the way through to the end of chapter five, and that was uh, page um, 60. So um, 
yeah, so that's that. So I didn't finish the whole book, but I finished about almost about a half of it. And it's a great testament. It's a great journal of where I was at in my in my um, journey with Louise and with my spirituality. Uh, after that book in 1999, I picked up a copy of Love Yourself, Heal Your Life workbook. Um, and I never filled anything out in that. I'll be completely honest. And then the final book I bought, which is a... Um, it was also in 1999, was You Can Heal Your Life. So I have a third copy of this, and it's uh, a beautifully illustrated version of You Can Heal Your Life. So those are all the books that I have. And then I just wanted to, uh, the other thing that I did was I pulled a bunch of books off my bookshelf that I wanted to talk about, other books that really um, helped me in my spiritual journey. Um, and uh, I'm, just I'm just picking up the books right now and sort of moving them into some kind of an order. So one of the things that I did during the during my 20s and 30s during the New Age movement that was that I really became connected to crystals and crystal healing. And again, I'm you know, a lot of people make fun of this and uh, you know think that it's uh, you know really ridiculous. But I have to say that for me, crystal healing really was about focusing on an object, feeling energy, being aware of energy, energy movement within the body. Um, I didn't. You know, I believe that it would help to calm me and it would help to ground me, help to put my chakras back in alignment. So I had a number of books on crystal healing back in the day. I also, believe it or not, um, had a business uh, where I did crystal um, readings for people. I did individual sessions. I did workshops. I did lectures and I did classes. And uh, the name of the the name of the um, the name of my business was called Indigo Vision. Um, and, uh, it was fun. I did it for uh, a couple of years in Atlanta and I had a great fun with it and I had really positive, uh, sweet intentions throughout. So I don't feel like I was ripping people off or anything. I was just really giving people an alternative to say meditation or in conjunction with their meditation or with massage or with relaxation. That's how I looked at it. Uh, two of the books that came to mind that really were influential with me was one was called Patterns of the Whole, Volume 1, Healing and Quartz Crystals, A Journey with Our Souls by John D. Rea. Uh, I loved this book so much. And if you go through my copy of this book, I literally read this book from cover to cover and have a lot of um, highlights in the book, things that I really enjoyed. Uh, the, another thing that I discovered uh, when I purchased, uh, when I was really involved in this specifically in the 80s and then in the early 90s, um, in July of 87, I picked up a book. So the previous book that I talked about, I bought in 86. In 87, I picked up a book that was actually a much older book um, about stones and um, about sp precious stones. Actually, it was written in 1913. And then again, it was re- um, a new edition in 41 and then another new edition in 71. So this was called The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kunz. And I got this in 87. And this was just a fascinating book to sort of see, you know, what people were thinking 100 years before with precious stones. I also, as I mentioned, chakras earlier, I really got involved with chakra work. I purchased a copy of The Chakras by C.W. Leadbeater from uh i believe it must have been from a used bookstore because it has somebody else's signature in it and this book let me just pull this out so this book was also a very very old book it was written originally in 1927 and then republished throughout the decades 
I purchased my copy in San Francisco in October of 1993. And then there's two more books that I that really, really touched my soul and really put a huge imprint on me. One of them is called Emmanuel's Book, A Manual for Living Comfortably in the Cosmos. There was a lot of channeling back in the day of people channeling other spirits from other dimensions and other realities. A lot of people think this is bullshit. Um, but I really connected. I, I'm not here to argue whether this is real or not. There's there's a thousand things in organized religion religion that are totally fantasy and made up. So the idea that I have to justify um, anything like this is ridiculous. As far as I'm concerned, the words are beautiful. The sentiment is beautiful and the intention is beautiful in this book. I bought this book in 1986. Um, it's by um, a woman named Pat, Pat Rodigast, and um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. She's the channeler, and uh, it was uh, written in 85. I bought it a year later in 86. There were two more books that came out. I have both of those as well, two and three. Really, really gorgeous book that really spoke to me, and um, I just, uh, again, I sort of thought about this book, and um and also pulled quotes out of this book that I used as affirmations, just really beautiful. And then another book that I have that was not um, not as influential, but uh, I thought it was really good. I bought it in 87 during the Harmonic Convergence. It's called A Handbook to Higher Consciousness. Uh, I had two spiritual mentors, uh, Gordon Greenwood and Priscilla Normandy Greenwood, who were my father-in-law and step uh, stepmother-in-law at the time. Uh, and Gordon was really um, interested in Ken Keyes, who's the writer of this book. So he's the one that sort of turned me on to this. There's also a book about relationships that he wrote. And again, if you look through my copy of this, there's a lot of highlights from a lot of books. So that was there as well. But really, You Can Heal Your Life, Emmanuel's book. And then the third book that really touched my soul um, was a book that I feel like I went through the 80s with... You Can Heal Your Life and Louise Hay, and then the 90s were about um, Carolyn Mace. So Carolyn Mace in 1996 wrote a book called Anatomy of the Spirit, The Seven Stages of Power and Healing, and this book really, really spoke to me. Um, she did write it in 96, and I bought it as soon as I got a copy, as soon as it was released. So this book really speaks to me. I have a notebook, uh, like an old um, school notebook, that I purchased that I did all the exercises from the book in it. It really spoke to me on a very deep level. Um, and I really think it was one of the great books of the 1990s that came out. And then the final book that I pulled from my bookshelf was the Tibetan book of living and dying, which I purchased a copy in 96. Uh, again, this is a book that is um, an older book. It was originally released in, I'm sorry, it's not, it's, it's not that old. It was re originally released in 1993. And I bought it three years later in 96. This book, uh, it says, a new spiritual classic from one of the foremost interpreters of Tibetan Buddhism to the West. So this was one of my dipping of my toes in Buddhism. Um, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a practicing Buddhist. But that was another book that really spoke to me. So those are all of the, um, all of the books that I really loved um, as, far, as well as the Louise Hay books. I do want to just say a few things about where I'm at now spiritually. So my 10 years in New York City during the 1990s were very influential in how I view the world. 
Um, I did start out going to uh, spiritual and new age uh, events like the um, healing circle, which was really, really informative and really, um, really important to me during that time period. And then as I started getting better and as I uh, moved through my 30s into my 40s, I really felt like um, agnosticism was a more a closer uh, identity to how I view my spirituality. And um, I feel like some people look at ag agnostics and think, well, they just can't make up their mind. But for me, the way that I define agnosticism is that I don't know if there's a God and I won't won't ever know if there's a God until I'm dead. And so for me, the most important thing that I can do in this physical world when I, where I'm living is to focus on what's happening in the world, to focus on climate change, to focus on uh, gender equality, to focus on, you know, all sorts of things, war, famine, um, making the world a better place. And the best way that I can do that is not worry about what's going to happen after I'm dead. Because I look at the people that are really destructive in this country right now, and they are on this path where all they care about is um, the sort of end times so that they can take over and become elevated, you know, spiritual beings once they're, once they're dead and they don't give, uh, they don't give a shit about the, about the planet. Um, they just want to use it for power and for money. And then they think they're going to get some kind of reward after that. Um, so I just don't have any time for that anymore. And, uh, I'm very, very comfortable with the identity of agnosticism. I would say that, that's come to me about 25 years ago, and I've hung on to that. Um, but of course, the basis and the and the base for my spiritual belief system, for my value system, for my morality has all come from the New Age philosophy that I've discussed today that happened to me during my 20s and my 30s and even into my 40s. Uh, so I want to thank Louise Hay for all of that. I want to thank all of the other teachers that I came uh that I came on to, whether they were people that were in, that were physically in my presence, such as uh, my mentors that I mentioned earlier, Gordon and Priscilla and some other people, or if they were books that I read, or if they were, um, you know, the other thing too, is that art and music and film and television and all of that all adds to the understanding that I have of, um, my place in the world, why we're here, uh, what we're here for, what's important. Um, and I do really believe that everybody has the right to believe whatever they want to believe, as long as it's not harming or um, injuring someone else. So just keep that in mind when you make your decisions. I will do the same. Um, and I know that uh, that we all have a place in this world, and it's a it's a big, big, big world. Um, but when you look up at the stars at night, and I'm not being corny about this, I actually looked up at the sky the other night and thought about this. And I thought, we are such a small little speck in the universe. And we have this consciousness and this intelligence that's like a gift. So who cares where it's from, what it's from, where it's going? All that matters is this moment that we have and um, the connections that we have with people. So uh, I think that you uh, we are uh, a better uh, we are a better species when we remember things like that. So thanks so much for listening and and uh, spending some time with me. 
I um, am always so happy. This is, again, this is Philip Barr. I'm Real Charlie. This is Real Charlie Speaks. It's a monthly podcast from the Real Charlie blog. So if you would like to hear more about who I am and what I write about with film and television, check out my um, my blog at realcharlie.com. And I am going to... So yes, yeah, so I was trying to see what's coming up next. So next month is going to be a bit lighter. In fact, next month is going to be a lot lighter. So December is going to be all about Christmas films. So I'm going to talk about uh, classics like White Christmas and Christmas in Connecticut. And I'm also going to talk about funky foreign films uh, that you might love as well. Uh, but it's all going to be about holiday films and the joy of holiday films. And then we'll talk about what's happening in 2023. I already have about five or six ideas for themes that I think would be absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you so much. I know there's so much to listen to out there, and I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me. Uh, if you have any comments, please um, feel free to leave them. You can. Uh, I always post this on my blog, realcharlie.com, but it's also out there, um, and it will be out there very soon on all podcast platforms. So many, many thanks. Um, enjoy your day. Be good to yourself. Uh, think some positive thoughts, uh, say an affirmation or two, and um, we will all be better people because of it. All right. Much love and light to everyone.